Hey, it's Mark. There's a face-off brewing among prescription drugs to treat lung cancer, with billions of dollars at stake for the companies involved. The cancer drug Tegriso represents AstraZeneca's most lucrative product, generating $5.4 billion last year. Tegriso holds a commanding position as a first-line treatment for patients who have a positive EGFR mutation. Patients whose tumors have this type of genetic mutation are a subset of the more than 2 million people diagnosed yearly with lung cancer, but they're a significant one. Around 15-20% to 20% of patients who are diagnosed in the metastatic phase have it. And Tegriso's success in treating that population hasn't gone unnoticed by other drug makers. Johnson & Johnson's own drug cocktail, pairing the bispecific drug Ribrovant with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor Lizertinib, led to a 30% reduction in risk of disease progression or death in a head-to-head trial against Tegriso. But AstraZeneca isn't standing still. It's been testing Tegriso along with chemo in the same setting, and data from its FLORA2 trial demonstrated a roughly nine-month benefit in risk of disease progression or death for the decreased Tegriso chemo combo versus Tegriso alone. That's about two months better than J&J's combo. As analysts now debate whether Tegriso can blunt the challenge from J&J for share of the first-line EGFR mutant NSCLC market, Arun Krishna, VP and head of the U.S. lung cancer franchise at AstraZeneca, joins us on the podcast to discuss how the Flora 2 data can help Tegriso differentiate itself and just maybe hold on to its lead in lung cancer. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark. Today, I'll give an update on Monica Bertagnoli's nomination to head the National Institutes of Health following a Senate Health Committee hearing last week. And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week, we're talking about hazardous drinking products, TikTok's bed rotting trend, and the impact of GLP-1 weight loss drugs on the gambling industry. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hi, I'm pleased to be welcomed today by Arun Krishna, the VP and head of the U.S. lung cancer franchise at AstraZeneca. Arun, how are you doing today? Excellent, Jack. Happy to be on board as well. I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Obviously, some really interesting news that came out from AstraZeneca recently. Can you walk me through the phase three trial results for Tegriso and chemotherapy and kind of give us a high-level overview of some of the most meaningful results? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great to see positive high-level results of the study we call FLORA2. Uh, it's a follow-on study, which was previously we had Flora, which was a Tegriso or Ozimertinib as a monotherapy compared to current standard of care. Here, Flora 2 is combination of Tegriso or we could call Ozimertinib in combination with chemo. The high-level results was presented at WCLC, the World Lung Conference at Singapore. And uh, it was great to see the positive results and some of those meaningful endpoints which we were measuring actually hit. So the first one was progression-free survival. What we were able to demonstrate was we were able to see a nine-month increase on progression-free survival of the experiment arm, which in this case, ozimertinib versus chemo, versus a comparator arm, which is ozimertinib as a monotherapy. We also looked to see whether there were any profound safety signals uh, during this study, and we it was, and we can say that it was very comparable uh, to that of the um, standard of care arm as well. Excellent. So I, I appreciate you giving us the background there. I guess on the go forward, what does that look like in terms of next steps, whether that is a phase 
uh, you know, I'm kind of curious where it goes from here in terms of any sort of regulatory steps or, you know, what the next phase of this is. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about any phase three study, as we saw, this was a positive readout of Flora 2 phase three study at WCLC. The next steps, of course, is for us to have ongoing discussions with FDA, EMA and other regulatory bodies across the world and hopefully go through the, the relevant timelines uh, to make sure that we are then available for patients at the time of approval. Um, and that is the standard process that we follow uh, as any pharmaceutical company would. Uh, the, the impact, so I think if I just rewind, you know, ozimertinib or Tegriso has been approved for patients who have a positive EGFR mutation. And this is a specific type of mutation which, uh, you know, uh, certain types of lung cancer patients could have. And it's around, uh, the prevalence is around 15 to 20% of, of patients who are diagnosed in the metastatic phase have an EGFR positive. Uh, mutation. So it's quite a significant population. So this drug is specifically for them. Uh, the Flora 2 study, as I said, was in the late stage or in the metastatic stage. So these were patients uh, who had either locally advanced, which are stage 3 B and C, or stage 4 disease as well. And I'm curious how these results help you differentiate yourself in what is increasingly becoming a very competitive space. I know that each drug maker kind of looks for their different angle to say, you know, this treatment may work, but this is the one that you really want to go with. How does how do these results play into that dynamic for you? Oh, yeah, spot on. So, you know, uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, when you think about lung cancer as a um, a, a treatment option for patients who have lung cancer, the first and foremost thing one should be doing is to be able to test for your biomarker status. This is the most crucial and critical aspect of it because if you're able to test for your biomarker status, you are then able to provide the necessary treatment which, which addresses the biomarker, which in this case, testing for an EGFR positive mutation is critical because if you are positive EGFR, then you have a TKI as an option for your treatment and Tegriso is your third generation TKI which is has the current which is the current standard of care in these patients. So first and foremost to your point it's extremely important and relevant to test the biomarker status. If you're able to test the biomarker status then you're able to tailor the necessary treatments and therapy to that patient. So within that context Tegriso as a monotherapy has always been the backbone for patients with EGFR positive results. Now we are coming up with another option with this study for patients within that space as well. So, which is showing an additional benefit of around nine months. So this is another alternative for patients who could be, uh, who could, where this therapy could be potentially used. Particularly, we have seen some really promising results with Flora 2 with patients who have CNS or patients who have an L858R mutation and compared to the current standard of care. So when we, uh, we look forward to having further discussions with our external community as well as regulatory bodies to, and then look at see how we can actually impact some of those um, for those specific types of patients which I've mentioned. So if we were to have a conversation, say, six months from now or even in a year about where the lung cancer franchise stands for AstraZeneca, where would you see it, you know, in your ideal world? What would it look like in terms of maybe product rollout or other developments down the line? 
Yeah, really good point. As you can see, the trajectory in terms of oncology medicines and AstraZeneca has really accelerated over the past five to eight years, right? And especially in our lung cancer treatment. And Tigrisol was one of the first options for patients for, from AstraZeneca in the lung cancer space. And since then, we have numerous indications and treatments within this space. Our ambition is around impacting the lives of every patient across every stage within the lung cancer treatment. And so we look to see whether we have the opportunity through our robust phase three trials and early pipeline to see if we can make an impact in that space. And one of the things that we are quite excited about in the near term is a new TROP2 ADC called Dato DXT. We just announced positive high-level results for Dato DXT within the lung space with the TLO1 study, and we look to share that results in an upcoming, upcoming Congress in the near future. I saw those results last week, and obviously it's, it's, it's exciting to hear your enthusiasm around it. I am curious, though, obviously coming here from a, a layman, I don't come from the oncology world per se, but when you look at how oncology is discussed or lung cancer specifically, what sort of misunderstandings, you know, our audience are primarily messengers and communicators, so they always want to have the best understanding to relate to the general public. But when you see it as it relates to your space in particular, what are the ones that stand out to you where you're like, if we could just get this down in terms of messaging or communicating, are there anything that come to mind? Jack, that's an excellent point, right? One of the things that we have often seen in the U.S. as well as globally, that that early diagnosis is critical in terms of lung cancer patients' overall survival because we are able to now move treatments up in that setting. So the most important message is around patients to get our people or population to be screened and diagnosed early. And if you're screened and diagnosed earlier, you have a cha- you have a significant higher chance of having a bigger overall survival and potentially even a chance for cure in that setting. So most patients are diagnosed late currently, and if we can move that up through screening, IPN detection, which is incidental pulmonary nodule detection and clinics, we're able to then get patients treated earlier. And by getting patients treated earlier, we have that much chance of improving their survival, but potentially even cure. So that, to me, is the number one uh, message. The second message is, Every time you're diagnosed with lung cancer, ensure you know your biomarker status. Because if you know your biomarker status, you are then able to target the therapies to that biomarker status as opposed to a one-size-fits-all solution. And I can imagine that your point is so much more well taken, especially as we're coming out of the emergency phase of the pandemic, where a lot of people, you know, rightly or wrongly put off care, put off doing a lot of these screeners. And, you know, the the research is still ongoing. But, you know, the fear among a lot of the people, at least I speak to in the healthcare community, I'm sure it's the same for you, is that, you know, cancers and other things have gone on, gone undetected and were, you know, due for maybe a surge or people that are so far down the line that they didn't have these, you know, chances to really intervene earlier in the process. Yeah, spot on, because what we have seen from the data is that there has been a dip in terms of lung cancer diagnosis during the time of COVID. And it can, and, 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 and I can see why, because the symptoms sometimes can be quite misrepresented as COVID symptoms, right? But to your point, as we come out of COVID, my urge is for people to go get checked to ensure, especially if you have been a previous smoker, when you follow certain things that that could put you potentially at high risk of lung cancer, to ensure you go and get screened. It is an easy process in order to do that. So you are able to then ensure that you you are diagnosed earlier. And by being diagnosed earlier, you have a 
significant higher chance of living longer and potentially cure, as I said. Excellent. Well, Arun, I've really appreciated you being on the show and being able to pass along these insights to our audience. Wanted to give you the final word in case there's anything else as it relates to the lung cancer franchise at AstraZeneca or anything else that the company is working on that you think is meaningful for our audience to know. You know, uh, first off, thank you, Jack, for having me over at the show. As you can see, you know, lung cancer is a debilitating disease. And and there are a lot of patients who have been diagnosed late. So my number one message I, I would love to iterate is, if you are a high-risk patient population, please get yourself screened. And secondly, if you are, if you know somebody who's been diagnosed with lung cancer or you're yourself diagnosed with lung cancer, ensure you know your biomarker status because there are numerous number of treatments out there who can extend your survival and potentially cure. I think it's a great time to be with AstraZeneca, especially in the oncology space. We are investing heavily, not just in lung cancer, but across all, all cancers. And we're looking to really move treatments up in the in the stage so we can so patients can truly benefit from these drugs and have a longer and a more meaningful life excellent well again Narun, really appreciate you being on the show certainly wish you the best in terms of any advancements on the lung cancer space and if there are more results down the line we'd love to have you back on the show to discuss them thank you jack i really appreciate it Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Cancer surgeon Monica Bertinoli has been President Joe Biden's pick for the director of the National Institutes of Health since May. But her confirmation process has taken months, compared to her predecessor Francis Collins' confirmation, which took only four weeks. The delay is mostly due to Senator Bernie Sanders, who heads the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, or HELP Committee, and who has refused to move forward with the process over drug prices. Over the summer, Sanders vowed to, quote, oppose all NIH nominations until we have a very clear strategy on the part of the government as to how we're going to lower the outrageously high cost of prescription drugs. Last week, though, Sanders finally agreed to hold a help committee hearing on Bertagnoli's nomination. That's because the Biden administration has made one step towards Sanders's wish. The White House recently announced a new contract with Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for COVID-19 monoclonal antibodies. That deal would require the list prices of any resulting drugs from the collaboration to be equal to or lower than the price in other countries. During the hearing, Sanders grilled Bertagnoli more on drug prices, as well as what her priorities would be as head of the NIH. Will you commit to us that you will work to make sure that Americans do not pay higher prices for prescription drugs in this country than people around the world. Uh, Chairman Sanders, it would be a great honor to be able to work with you to make sure that the American people have access to the care that they need to live long and healthy lives. Other hotspot issues that arose during the hearing included Republican questions around how Bertagnoli would restore public trust in the beleaguered agency since its struggles during COVID-19, as well as issues like gain-of-function research and transgender youth care. The committee will vote Wednesday to decide whether they will send Bertinelli's nomination to be approved by the Senate. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending in healthcare this week. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. So I want our listeners to beware of what you drink. We have two recent headlines here about ingesting products that may be hazardous to your health or the health of your loved ones. 
Late last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics warned that powdered drink mixes that are widely promoted as, quote, toddler milks for older babies and children up to the age of three are unregulated, unnecessary, and, quote, nutritionally incomplete. The drinks are often advertised towards parents on social media platforms like TikTok and often contain added sugar and salt. The AAP criticized manufacturers who often produce the top brands of infant formulas and package them with similar labels and sell them in the same store aisles for making unproven claims about how the drinks can boost kids' brains or immune systems. Also earlier this week, parents alleged in a wrongful death suit against Panera Bread that a 21-year-old with a heart condition died after consuming a heavily caffeinated energy drink at the fast casual restaurant chain that she may have believed was a regular lemonade. The suit alleges that Sarah Katz was diagnosed with long QT syndrome and experienced cardiac arrest after drinking a charged lemonade at Panera. The lawsuit says Katz was, quote, reasonably confident that it was a traditional lemonade and or electrolyte sports drink containing a reasonable amount of caffeine safe for her to drink and charges that Panera misled consumers by not properly labeling charged lemonade as an energy drink in stores. Um, I can tell you that I've been to Panera a number of times and have never come across the charged lemonade. But as someone who lives with a heart condition, you do find yourself being extra mindful, I think, of drinks and what their caffeine content is. Lesh, I'm curious your take on either one of these stories, frankly, in terms of what it means for consumers. Yeah, you know, the the cat's story, I, I looked up the charged lemonades because I've also never come across them at Panera. Um, and apparently a regular size of one of these lemonades contains around 260 milligrams of caffeine, which to put into context is equivalent to about four shots of espresso. Um, and when you look this up on Panera's website, um, you know, they're kind of marketed as being these refreshing, clean green plant-based, you know, drinks um, with different flavors. And it's not really clear how much caffeine is in them. So it, it appears it's been sort of misleading customers. Um, but it's interesting because a TikTok actually went viral about this drink about a year ago where a girl said she was, you know, doing some work at Panera regularly and was drinking these lemonades and starting to feel like the Hulk and not knowing why until she realized how much caffeine they had in them. Um, so I think they were maybe a little uh, negligent with some of their marketing around this product. Yeah, Mark, I want to bring you into the conversation because I also saw that Lesh in the stories that were writing about this, that that clean comment kept coming up. And I don't even know what that really means when it comes to a drink or plant-based. I think a lot of drinks are ultimately plant-based? I don't know. It was, it was interesting. I, but Mark, what's your take on all this? Yeah, my, my kids and I always laugh when we see that eat clean bro, um, yeah. you know, uh, billboard on, along the turnpike. But, you know, to add to that little context, um, you know, over the summer, we had spoken about Logan Paul's energy drink in the context of Senator Chuck Schumer's calling on the FDA to investigate the beverages as he put it absurd caffeine content in his letter to the, uh, to the agency, as well as its marketing, targeting kids on social. Well, uh, Prime Energy, uh, as Jack pointed you pointed out then, has about 200 milligrams of caffeine, which is the equivalent of one to two eight ounce cups of brewed black coffee. And uh, the Mayo Clinic says on average 400 milligrams of caffeine per day is safe for adults, though obviously the drug affects people differently as in the case of uh, cats. She had this uh, pre-existing condition. Uh, and Paul's drink also comes with a warning label, which doesn't seem to have been the case here with Katz's lawsuit. So some, some important differences there. And obviously we, we see the need for being really clear in, in how you market this stuff. 
Absolutely. No, certainly for consumer safety, if nothing else. Lesh, I want to throw it to you for this next story because you've gone down the TikTok rabbit hole again and come up with something that I guess a number of people wouldn't have an issue with, but some people also see it as kind of a slippery slope to uh, the opposite of self-care. Sure. So for baby boomers, turning your brain off after work might have involved sitting in front of the TV with dinner and beer. But for Gen Z and millennials, turning your brain off after work could mean taking part in the latest TikTok trend called bed rotting. Across the app, people have hopped on this trending hashtag to show how they rot or stay in bed all day long. Bed rotting usually entails snuggling under the covers, often in pajamas, with Netflix on your laptop or TV for hours. People are often bed rotting while mindlessly scrolling on the phone. And it really refers to this idea of shutting yourself off from doing any work, any chores, and avoiding any form of socializing, all in the name of rest and self-care. However, bed rotting can become a slippery slope away from self-care and into depression. Um, And I'll use an example of one girl who uh, posted a video who noted that she was better, she was finding herself better outing on a daily basis and it was becoming a problem. And she said, I've reached the stage in my life where rotting has become habitual. It seems like the most natural thing to do for me, but it doesn't feel good anymore. It doesn't feel good to never leave my apartment or scroll for hours on TikTok, feeling my anxiety build up and not taking any steps to relieve that. I don't know how to address it, but I'm acutely aware of it. I need to change because I can't keep living like that. It's literally eating up my brain. And a lot of commenters agreed, noting that they were experiencing the same problem. So this is really an area that can be gray because, you know, it's kind of a fine line between what constitutes self-care and what might be veering into exacerbating mental health issues. I was curious if either you had thoughts on that. Yeah, I'll hop in first. And then, Mark, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I, As with anything, you know, I, I'm always good for a lazy day. I think that my fiance can attest that there's nothing I love more than just a time where I can turn my brain off and not have to socialize and not be on as we were talking about off air. But when you get into the habit of doing it every day or for these prolonged periods of time, yeah, it's no, it's no question that it suddenly goes from self-care to self-destruction in some sort of way and can feed into these other mental health or behavioral issues that people have. Mark, I'm, I'm curious what you think about bed rotting. Have you ever bed rotted? <laughs> I have not, um, although I have spent, you know, my time in bed, but I have not uh, crossed over into the bed rotting trend per se. But uh, it reminds me of a piece that I read uh, in Time over the summer that kind of pointed out an interesting trend. Uh, as the article put it, we've reached peak therapy, so to speak, you know, where we have all these athletes, celebrities, politicians, obviously people on TikTok talking about their mental health struggles. Not only that, but people are talking correctly or not in the language of therapy, as the article put it, using terms like self-care. And uh, but do they, you know, are they kind of, you know, self-diagnosing themselves in the wrong way here? You know, and so the article was kind of trying to figure out what's at the, at the same time we have all of this, you know, increased awareness of mental health. The trends are going in the wrong direction. You know, one in eight U.S. adults now takes an antidepressant. One in five has recently received some kind of mental health care an increase of almost 15 million people in treatment since 2002. So the trends are not going in the right direction. This kind of bed rotting trend, I feel like is kind of like a symptom of that, that people are just not, you know, they're kind of interpreting 
understanding the self-care need in the in the wrong way. Self-care means taking care of yourself in a, in a healthy way, getting outside, getting outdoors, doing more exercise, leading a healthy lifestyle, staying in bed, you know, you know, under the covers, doing scrolling through social media or watching binge watching. Okay, that might be okay to do, you know, here and there, but to to turn to that as quote unquote self-care, there's just like a disconnect there. And perhaps, you know, the article didn't necessarily come to a conclusion as to why there's a gap there between the rising awareness of mental health issues and the trends going in the wrong direction. But it could be that there aren't enough mental health professionals, therapists um, to uh, alleviate this crisis, but just seemed to be another another symptom. And that was my take. Yeah, I don't think that's far off. That was kind of the indication I got is that, oh, yeah, this is obviously people who may you know, with all good intentions, say I'm doing something that's going to reclaim my own self-care and mental health and all the stuff that I think has been focus of destigmatization over the years. But if you lack the accessibility to medications, to treatment, to a, a mental health provider, you know, you can go into these where you're like, oh, I'm just going to I'm going to take it on my own terms. I'm going to self-medicate, if you will, through bed rotting. And then you sound like it's the point where you're actually doing yourself no favors. You're actually being a detriment to yourself. So definitely an interesting trend for sure in terms of, you know, how people are talking about it online. And, you know, again, people kind of making fun of it, but then also people saying, hey, I've been doing this and it's not making my life any better. Speaking of people doing things off label or maybe kind of doing things on their own, um, MO, we've talked a number of times on the show about the GLP ones, the weight loss drugs that have really kind of revolutionized the weight loss and, um, uh, physical fitness conversation in this country. And a recent report from Bank of America to its clients laid out the pros and cons of more people asking their doctors for access to these GLP one drugs. And while many have speculated about how the widespread emergence and use of these drugs could impact traditional food and beverage producers, retailers, fast food chains, now the gambling industry is taking notice. One analyst from Bank of America highlighted the link between obesity and problem wagering, knowing that casino customers who display problematic betting patterns account for between 10 to 30 percent of industry revenue. This caught the attention of Casino.com, which reported that the analyst added that the implication of using GLP-1s on a widespread basis could create a, quote, 0 to 4% revenue headwind for U.S. commercial gaming with higher risk for slot machines or regional gaming. The site said that while there may be opportunities for the largest operators of casinos on the Las Vegas Strip, your MGMs and Caesars, benefiting from weight loss as it would encourage more people to travel, regional operators could be pinched by a move towards healthier living. Um, I have my own thoughts on gambling and betting and all of that, and that's obviously not where we're going to take the conversation. But interesting, Mark, that there is this kind of angle where it's saying like, hey, we've had this widespread discussion about the impact of weight loss drugs, but here's how it could affect this one industry in particular that's maybe outside of the, the mainstream focus. Right. And it's also interesting, Jack, that I think the jury's still out. Even in the gaming industry, as you pointed out, there could be an offset in terms of more people traveling, you know, to, to places and destinations like Las Vegas. But in addition to its effects on the ga gaming and tourism, that so-called Ozempic effect is hitting a wide breadth of industries uh, from food and beverage makers to manufacturers of glucose monitors. Reuters had an interesting report on this. I think it was based on investor calls. And some of the more, more interesting ones I noted were food company ConAgra, 
saying they might consider changing portion sizes if the rising use of weight loss drugs leads to a shift in consumption patterns. Fresenius and DaVita are so far monitoring the effects on their dialysis products, and J&J's third quarter sales for devices used in abdomen surgeries was hit by a slowdown in demand for weight loss and other procedures. Then again, Abbott Labs, which makes glucose monitoring products, has said that the market was overestimating the impact to its sales from growing popularity of these drugs. And J&J's CFO went so far as to say that use of the drugs could eventually make patients eligible for procedures like hip and knee replacements or other orthopedic surgeries. So it seems to be cutting both ways. It's interesting you bring up that point about the Abbott um, that was on their uh, investor call last week after they released their earnings. I know that made quite a few ripples in the industry with people saying like, huh, if Abbott's taking that stance on it, given where their business is, uh, I wonder how they're reading the tea leaves. Lesh, I'm curious. I mean, we were just in Vegas. So the idea that we're talking about uh, gambling is kind of on the nose. But just your thoughts on kind of the, the effect we could be seeing on weight loss drugs, maybe outside of the main category that we had been focusing on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting that they they've been starting to see at least initial evidence that, um, you know, these drugs might potentially also be able to curb other forms of addiction, drug, alcohol, and tobacco use disorders, for example. The science isn't quite there yet. There was a 2022 study published in the British Journal of Pharmacology that noted that um, initial studies in rodents and non-human primates have demonstrated a reduction in intake of alcohol and drug of abuse, and clinical trials have been initiated to investigate whether those preclinical findings can be translated to patients. So we're still a ways away from knowing with certainty that they could work for other issues as they we know they do work for um, weight loss and curbing appetite. Um, but I do think this it's definitely fascinating to see how that rolls out and how um, that impact will be felt in those areas. Yeah, I think it's something that you kind of touch on there where there's so much other research that shows promise in tackling other aspects of the brain and, and human behavior. It'll certainly be interesting to see how that all shakes out as we get the results in the future. But as for right now, I guess, you know, gaming industry, beware. <laughs> Lily and Novo are coming for you. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode of the MMM podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode when we'll be joined by Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.